Join me in a word of prayer, if you would. Gracious God, um, you're so good. Um, we are just grateful to be here uh, together uh, with each other, uh, God, uh, as we come into view of your word, um, as we uh, celebrate a season um, that really uh, is about what we're talking about today. And so I just pray that you would use your word, um, just use your grace to us, God, to just move us uh, towards you, to move us towards people, um, particularly, Lord, uh, the people who just do not know you. Um, God, that you would do that work this morning, and uh, God, that you would receive the glory and the credit and the praise for it. Uh, God, we commit this time to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So as you well know, we are in John chapter 4, um, so join us there uh, if you're not there already. And uh, to start this off, let me go ahead and just uh, do a little brief recap for you. Thus far in chapter 4, this is what's happened in case you've forgotten from last week. I know it's been a while, um, or you just haven't been here for a while. What happened is that Jesus um, was on his way to Galilee. And so instead of passing around Samaria, like all of the other Jews did, he decided to go straight through, right? He put all the cultural, uh, prejudicial uh, things aside and decided to just uh, go straight through Samaria. And Brett unpacked that for us, just all of the uh, implications um, uh, of why Jews would, would make such effort to pass around um, Samaria. And so uh, he does this, and in the process, he comes across this woman. Uh, Samaritan woman, um, and, and what we saw last week is Jesus' uh, affectionate call to this woman to come to drink of the water that he offers, right? This is water uh, that will not leave you dry, it will not leave you thirsty, right? In fact, that if you drink it, you'll be thirsty no more, it'll even well up to eternal life. He offers her salvation, he offers her relationship, right? That's what he offers her, he calls her to this. Right? And so we focused on his call, and today we're going to take a look at her response and how telling her response is of the impact that Jesus had on her. Right? Uh, it's left maybe a little unclear, I guess, um, what her full response of her heart was to this, but I believe her physical response is pretty telling. All right? And so based on what uh, you already know about this passage, based upon... On, on what we just heard from Pam Reed, you're um, probably already understanding that this is going to be kind of an evangelistic kind of uh, sermon, right? We need to share the gospel. We need to tell people about Jesus. And if you're like me, then sometimes you might already be kicking up things in your head. Well, Adam, you just don't know the people I work with, the people I live with. You don't know my friends. There's no way I can tell them about Jesus. Right? And so I want to go and just encourage you to just join with me, just break that stuff down. First of all, just... Calm down a little bit, okay? We're not going to go crazy this morning, uh, but we are going to talk about uh, sharing Jesus with people, and I, and I would appreciate, and I think the Word would appreciate if you approached it with just an open mind this morning. Be open to what God might have for you, because I believe that what God has for us might uh, not just excite us towards this uh, way of life, of reaching people, but it also could actually relieve you a little bit in this regard. I think we have a lot of uh, misassumptions uh, in our day uh, in faith that in all reality, living uh, this way, living evangelistically uh, becomes just uh, another religious effort, but it's never a heart thing. So we want to fight against that today. And so what I want to do a little bit is to step back because I think it's important to understand this call. It's under, to, to understand what Jesus called her to, right, to understand this affectionate call. So we're going to backtrack a little bit, and this will help us in regards to the way that she responds. So if you look back at verse 4, 
right? This is when Jesus decided to go through Samaria, it says in verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. There's one important piece here about the way that Jesus calls us, and it's just that, that he came to her. Right? While we were still sinners, uh, Jesus died for us. Right? This is a part of the nature of his call is that he moves towards you. Right? She did not come to him. He came to her. And then she responded. Right? People who attribute their salvation to the work of their own hands are more likely to tell you about themselves than they are about Jesus. This is kind of a prereq attitude for religious elitism and, and, and judgmentalism. Right? But this tells us that Jesus uh, had to go through Samaria. Now, he's Jesus. He can do anything, right? Uh, and we know very well that all the other Jews were passing around Samaria. So he had to implies that he had work to do there. Right? It was necessary for him to go there because he had work to do. And we see that work uh, began with this woman, the Samaritan woman. Okay? But he came to her. It's important to understand. It's also important to understand what he invites her to. See, he invited invited her to a relationship, a saving relationship. He didn't invite her to a religion, right? We say this a lot, but people who are focused on religion are often too consumed by their own spiritual status to worry about the souls of others. This is the nature of religion. And if you don't believe it, just look around. This is prominent in American Christianity, something I I personally struggle with, that we practice and we preach relationship with Jesus, and then we spend the vast majority of our spiritual time, right, in our week privately doing our own religion, right, making actual uh, active effort on behalf of the gospel to share Christ with other people um, gets a very small portion. So just look at at how the time is spent, how our spiritual time is spent. It's pretty telling what we're focused on. Here's another interesting aspect of his call to this woman, and it's one that you don't find in the prosperity gospel that's so prominent these days, is he solicits conviction from her. He pulls conviction from her. If you look at verse 16, he says, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay, this was after he invited her to to drink from uh, uh, the water that will never leave her dry, never leave her her, uh, unsatisfied, and, and we get a feel for where she is lacking in fulfillment where she is lacking in uh, being satisfied. <clears throat> he brings conviction, right? We are shameless because the word is shameless in this. We will tell you that you are a sinner because we also understand that we are sinners. We have fallen so far short from God, it's not even funny. And it's a, um, it's a, a forever issue. It comes from all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 2 when God said to Adam and Eve, he said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then in Romans 5, we, we know that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death was passed on to men because all have sinned. And then Romans 6, in the wages of this sin is death. 
right? How or even why would you tell someone about Jesus if you don't feel like he saved you from anything? Why would you do that? Why would you tell people about Jesus actively if you don't feel like he's quenched your thirst, if you don't feel like he's done anything for you, if you don't feel like he's brought you out of some state of just uh, pain and agony, which we are all in before we know him spiritually, right? Jesus also says that those who have been forgiven much love much, and those who have been forgiven little love little. And so the way that you love Right, is telling uh, of how much you really believe that you have been forgiven. Okay? And lastly, uh, in this little segment here, he reveals his nature as the Jesus. It's part of his call. She understands this, right? Verse 4, um, or chapter 4, looking at 25. The woman said, I know uh, that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the first uh, kind of recorded um, place where Jesus gives just very direct um, kind of self-witness to who he is as the Messiah. Right? She gets that from him. Right? But he reveals his true nature as the Jesus. And the reason I say it is because of this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul is up against um, these, these uh, false prophets who are preaching another Jesus. That's what he says. He says uh, in verses 11 and 4 of 2 Corinthians um, 11, uh, sorry, verse 3 and 4. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And we are not to put up with this. Right? In fact, why would you tell anybody about Jesus if he was anything less than this? Why would you tell anybody about Jesus? Why would you let alone live for Jesus if you thought he was anything less Right, then the second person in the Godhead, the Messiah, uh, the King, the last word uh, given to us according to John 1, according to Hebrews 1, that's Jesus. He is God. He is nothing less than that. And if you're living for a Jesus less than that, then, then you're wasting your time. Right? So this is his nature. This is the nature of his call upon her. And I believe that her physical response to this is very, very telling. Right? Here's the point of all this that we just did. So often believers don't tell others about Jesus because they don't, not, they, they don't rightly understand what they've been called to themselves. I believe this woman's response to Jesus is very telling in how she perceives the call from Jesus. He came to her. He invited her to a relationship. Right? She's already been distorted on religion. We see that in, in chapter 4. He invites her to a relationship. Right? He has water that will never run dry. He's given her a place of, of conviction for her to understand her need. And he's revealed uh, his true nature as the only one with the answers and the power for forgiveness and healing and flourishing amidst those needs. Right? So today we're going to unpack her response a little bit. Looking in chapter 4, starting in verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. 
Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. We're going to camp out here for a little bit, so I hope you don't get uh, burnt out on this passage, but I want us to pick it apart, okay? The disciples, first of all, let's start with them. The disciples arrived, and they were surprised to find Jesus talking with the woman. Given everything that we've covered over the last two weeks, you can understand why. First of all, he was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. There's strike number one. Second of all, she was a woman. There's strike number two, culturally, right? And not only that, but he was alone with her. The disciples came back and saw this, and I think they were just dumbfounded. What is going on here? They had questions, but they weren't man enough to ask them because they were just too confused by what was going on. I wish it was safe to say that they, they, just, they trusted Jesus, they knew what he was up to, so they just let it slide. But the fact that there were questions, that there, there were questions in their mind just kind of prove otherwise. Right. Now we'll come back to them in a little bit. Uh, but let's look, uh, let's focus on the woman now, because in verse 28 it says that she leaves her water jar, right, and she goes and tells this town, the town that she was hiding from, uh, the town that likely knew many of her shameful uh, attributes, uh, the town uh, that was full of Samaritans, and she leaves her mundane daily routine of drawing water, and she sprints towards the town to tell them, right, that's a small detail, but it's actually really big. This water jar, right, that represents the daily mundane routines, right? She immediately shrugged it off so she could go tell people about Jesus. She was excited. She was intrigued. She had to tell them, come see this guy. By the way, how often do we set Jesus aside to focus on daily routines, how often does he get uh, our filthy seconds because we, we've been focusing on things that, that have no purpose, they bring no hope, they have no eternal value? How often do we set Jesus aside, uh, the well that never runs dry and fully satisfies thirst, uh, while, while we're pursuing and get, uh, gains um, and pursuits that, that offer temporary satisfaction but never any fulfillment? When was the last time, this is a question I asked myself, when was the last time you were so taken and excited about what Jesus has done for you that you just went and said some, to someone, you got to come see this guy. You got to come meet this guy. We live in a culture and we live in a time, especially in American Christianity, where we can just get so consumed with the academics and the families and, and all of that stuff that we forget that sometimes Jesus is worth dropping some things to tell some people about him. Sometimes it's worth it, more times than not. you got to come see this guy. It didn't matter how much she knew about the Bible or what her spiritual status was. She didn't tell herself, you know, I probably should go tell them, but they're not going to listen to me. She didn't talk herself out of it. She just went and she told. I think that's telling to, to how she received this call from Jesus. And here's the crazy part. They came. They came. Right? Uh, there has been a lot of research on just the, how, how receptive people are to, to matters of faith and, and what could help that. And, you know, as you would imagine, there's been a lot of studies. And so as I was browsing, I, I looked at many studies and decided to just try to summarize the gist of these studies for you. Okay? So here's a few things that I found. I didn't make them up, I promise. Right? The vast majority... Over three-quarters of unchurched people around you, around us, would actually listen to what you have to say about Christianity in a general sense. Right? Over three-fourths of people would actually hear you out. 
just under that, almost three-fourths of your friends and family would be willing to receive information regarding your church and would consider an invitation from you very effective, right? In my mind, it, that's, that's saying that people are open to it. Right? Now, just shy of that, over half of your friends or family members would actually be willing to study the Bible with you. I thought that was intriguing, right? Hey, I'm going through John 4 with my church on Sunday morning. Would you up? Would you want to read that with me sometime? We just chat about it, right? Over half would probably take you up on that, statistically. Okay, now listen to this. This is where it, it gets kind of interesting because all of these numbers, right, are increased depending on what's going on. Okay, so for example, these, these numbers are increased um, whenever there's a national or, or social or cultural disaster in our midst, Right? Many would say we're in one right now, given our political climate. Right? Um, based on that, people statistically are more receptive to matters of faith, to hear uh, what you have to say about what you believe. Right? And above that, okay, just above that, uh, um, these numbers increase even more if your friend or family member have just experienced a major life event. They had a baby, or they lost a loved one, or they got married, or whatever that is. In those times, people are more receptive to, to talk about matters of faith, right? The, this probably applies to even to Christian people, right? Even us. I'm even more receptive in these moments, it seems like. Okay, now here's the kicker. More than all of these, the thing that uh, makes people most receptive to matters of faith you probably guessed it in your head, it's the holidays. It's Christmas season, number one, time when people are most receptive to hearing about uh, your faith. Okay? Now, as far as I can tell in this country, we're two out of three already. So if you have a friend or a family member who just had a baby or had a major life event, then you should probably walk out right now and go call that person and share your faith with them because statistically speaking, they're going to hear you out and they're going to be open to it. Right? And it's funny whenever we do this stuff because it doesn't sound that hard. But here's another statistic that I found, and it's this. Only about 2% of you will actually go do this. Only about 2% of churchgoers will actually take this step through the course of a year. Okay. Um, that's also shocking, and I would hope that this congregation uh, you know, would be an outlier on that scale, right? But this is the reality. We talk about it, uh, we live it up, we chalk it up, but when it comes to just putting uh, rubber to the road, we, we, we just don't do it. We get too focused on the dailies. We get too focused on the things that, that are probably good, but they're just not this. Right? So here's the point. Before you talk yourself out of it, right, Number one, they may actually say yes. Statistically speaking, they're probably going to hear you out and be open to it, right? Statistically speaking. But here's the, here's the other kicker is that they desperately need this, right? So I'm trying to convince us that we need to do this because you're not going to get a bad response. Either way, they need this. They need this. Here's another statistic for you. Okay, um, this is one that I, that, I, that I did make up, all right? Virtually 0% chance um, that you will actually experience any physical harm for doing this with where we live, okay? And pretty close to that, maybe a little higher, you'll actually experience any hostility, 
right? We're just talking about family and friends, people who you already know, who do not know the Lord. The reality is that you're probably not going to get much pushback, statistically speaking. Okay? This is how Jesus would put it. He would say, look to the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Right? That's exactly what he says, actually, in this next passage. It feels like a tangent, but in fact, it's uh, uh, very ironic um, that it is located where it is. So read on with me. We're going to go back to the disciples. This is what's going on while the woman went to go get the people in the town. Meanwhile, verse 31, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Okay? Feels like a tangent a little bit, but it's so fitting and so ironic because Jesus basically begins teaching his disciples what the Samaritan woman is already doing. Right? This unclean Samaritan woman who just experienced Jesus is already in motion about this. And Jesus takes that opportunity to say, you guys need to be doing this. Right? I've called you to be fishers of men. I'm also calling you to be farmers. You've got to start harvesting because the crop, they're, they're ripe. They're ripe. Okay? Side note, by the way, I love the connection of food, right, as doing the Father's work. I love that Jesus said that. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And we know very well that that food is nourishing, right, satisfying to the soul. But part of this food for Jesus was was to get brutally killed, right? To do the work of the Father meant for him that he would have to be brutally murdered and, and, and basically ripped apart to do the work and will of the Father. Remember, he prays about this as he's sweating blood. Not my will be done, but yours. Now, Hebrews 2, verse 10 says that it's fitting for God to make Jesus perfect and complete through what he suffered. So we understand that Jesus knows fulfillment uh, and completeness more than anyone because of the sufferings and pain he endured. Right? They're linked together. Right, so here's the application. The most nourishing thing for your soul could possibly be the torment of your body. And, and many of you actually know this. This is part of your reality. The most nourishing thing for your soul could actually be uh, the hardship and torment of your body. Uh, the Apostle Paul spoke about a thorn in his flesh. Right, and it was, it was tor- tormenting. It was sent to torment him. Right? But through that torment, it de- he, he deepened in his understanding of God's sufficient grace for him. See, Paul was lacking in an area, and through pain, he grew through it. He grew in completeness towards the Lord. See, doing, work, doing the work and the will of the Father is not always painless. In fact, most times it's going to require sacrifice from you. But it always nourishes and deepens the soul. So as we're talking about telling people about Jesus, and we're talking about evangelism. By the way, mo- many of you would not be in here if others did not take this seriously. As we're talking about that, think about this. Okay, think about this. 
back to this. Jesus says, he says, uh, open your eyes and look at the fields, right? Surely as they all did that, you know, they saw the Samaritan woman and all of the Samaritans coming towards them. And to that, he says, they are ripe for harvest. They are ripe for harvest. So what's the point of all this? What, what, What happens at the end of all this? Let's read it here in verse 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's kind of the question that we asked ourselves back in verse 4. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? And we get the answer in one word. It's belief. It's John's word. It's belief. That's why he had to go. For the townspeople, it started with belief based on intrigue. Right, based on excitement because of this woman's testimony. But by the end of this verse of 42, we see that it ends with, with belief based on a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. One likely similar to, uh, that the woman, the Samaritan woman had with Jesus at the well. He spent days with them. He connected with them at a personal level. They didn't have to just take her word for it anymore. So to close this thing out, I kind of want to just narrow down on two different kinds of people. Okay, two different kinds of people. One, perhaps you're here and you're an intrigue-based believer. You're, you, you believe uh, based on intrigue. Perhaps you're excited about all this stuff because someone else is. Uh, back in the, uh, my youth ministry days and still a little bit in uh, young adults, we see this a lot. You know, especially in the dating world. People um, who, who decide to believe in Jesus because it's the cool thing to do among their group of friends or whatever. And it's, it's through people, Right? It's, it's kind of intriguing. It's kind of uh, entertaining, right? Maybe you just love the community uh, aspect of Christian culture, right? It's programs and radio stations and family friendliness, and it's all good. And so you, you've bought into it, at least at that level. Maybe you've uh, been here for months because you like the people and you like the music. Uh, but you need to know this. We all need to know this, that God has called you to something so much deeper than this. So much better than this. But it begins in brokenness. It's not all about the good stuff. It begins in brokenness. If, you have, if you're here and if you've never repented of your sin in brokenness and humility, understanding that your sin and my sin is the reason that he had to go to the cross, that his bloodshed and grit and torment has brought freedom and salvation to all who believe in him. That I encourage you today to become a believer, not based on anything else other than him himself. Don't be a believer just based on intrigue or because another person does it. Do it because, because he has impacted your life. And I'm telling you, you have enc- you've encountered Jesus this morning. You've experienced time with his body. You've experienced time in his word. And today is your day to make that decision. He's done this for you. Call upon his name and believe and you will be saved. Second, and this is the group I fall into. I want to acknowledge all those believers who have truly encountered Jesus, maybe in a saving way. But you're inclined to be a two percenter. Your faith is more private than it should be. And you know this, but you still manage to talk your way out of it and around it. 
I fall into this category so often. Here's what we need to be reminded of this morning, that there's nothing on earth more important for us to do than this. Nothing more important. The Lord's will for us is to be passionate for the lost and to do the work of an evangelist while doing all the other stuff that we do, all good, all well, but there's nothing more important for us to take seriously than this. Because this is a matter of life and death for eternity. And if you want to get Christmassy about it, there's no better way to celebrate Christmas, to honor Christmas, to honor what Jesus did at Christmas than to have a renewed passion for lost people in your midst. It's the very reason he came. For some of us, this might actually be the first time in our Christian life uh, that we've been uh, compelled to have a renewed passion for the lost. Others of us, we, we, this might just be uh, a foreign idea. Maybe you're rusty. You, you know, you just feel like that was just kind of a young man's game. And, and so now you just, it's just, it's family time from here on out. I want to encourage you, three just practical things to put in place this Christmas season. And, uh, and to see what God might do through your life, through your family um, with this in mind. And the first is to pray. Big surprise, right? Pray. Pray for a passion for the lost. We don't need more people trying to reach the lost because they know they're supposed to, but don't feel anything about it. It's it's ineffective. Pray that God would burn a passion in your heart for the people in your midst who don't know him, understanding that you have uh, have been quenched, your, your thirst has been satisfied, they're gasping in the desert. Pray that God would give you a passion. Pray that he would lift uh, a name or two so that you could be specific about it. Bring those people before him in in prayer. It's better to be intentional about a few than to be helplessly overwhelmed (coughs) about many. Pray for passion. Pray for your lost friend or family member that God would soften their heart, embolden you to speak to them. That he would give you the opportunity to share with them what you believe, who Christ is. Right. And the second, first, pray. Second is to share. Also, big surprise, right? Share. Share your life. Invite them into your world and be even more proactive <clears throat> about being a part of theirs. Right? If people are really more likely to hear you out in regards to faith after they've ha- had a major life event, then you've got to be close enough to them uh, to be able to be with them during that life event. Right? Facebook isn't good enough. Okay? You've got to be close to them. There's got to be a relationship. You share that with them, and, and the opportunity for the gospel arises. Right? I was not uh, surprised in my research to find that the holidays were uh, the time of the year when people are most receptive to the matters of faith. And I was also not really surprised uh, to find out that the least, almost at the bottom of the list uh, of ways to reach people was door-to-door. Surprising, right? Still effective to some st- extent, so I'm not dissing it, but this is a, this is a tactic and strategy that's been, uh, first of all, just abused by other faith-based or religious-based organizations and cults, right? Pushy ones at that, and so people are kind of turned off by it. But also, and even more importantly, we live in a generation and a culture um, that, that, that is much less trusting than it once was. Right? The, the whole leave it to beaver uh, uh, days where kids could roam and wander you know, through the whole day as long as they're back for dinner. Right? These are just kind of fleeting under the, under the joke of progress. Right? 
more and more, trust is something that needs to be earned. So does the right to have a spiritual voice to another who is lost. Share life. We share experiences. Develop the relationship. Invite them to where you are. And even more so, go to where they are. Share. Pray, share, and lastly, and this is the relieving part I was telling you about at the beginning, is to lean. Lean on the word. So often we, we feel like we have to sell people Christianity, and so we've got to talk it up, and this is what it can offer you. You're going to have your best life ever and all that kind of stuff, and that's just not real. Christianity, uh, real Christianity, according to the Bible, uh, is much bigger than that. You, you don't have to be ashamed about what the Bible says. Get the word to them. That's the main thing. Get the word to them. Rely on the word. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Don't feel like you've got to sell it to them. Read them the word. Be in the word yourself. Um, um, be in the word yourself so that your life, your words, and your actions are inspired by the word. Speak the word to them. Read them the word. Invite them to uh, discover the word with you. Encourage them to read the word with you. Use the word. Respond uh, to faithfulness to the word. Right? Their response, by the way, is between them and God. You have no control over that. Your job is simply to be faithful. Also, on this note, do not rely on your good conduct and behavior to save people. You've got to share it at some point. You've got to. Right? Watching PG movies and not cussing and going to church and, and, and not going to bars. You know, why people aren't coming to my, why, why aren't people coming to my doorstep asking me about Jesus? I'm doing all of these things. Right? That's not evangelism. It's good for you to do what you feel like you need to do before the Lord. It's not evangelism. Don't rely on that for people's souls. It doesn't work. Okay? Be faithful. Get the word in front of these people. Gracefully, humbly, do what you need to do to do that. All right, so let's go into the rest of this Christmas season with this in mind. If you need to give something up to make that happen, do it. Because I'll say it again, and it's the last thing I'll say. There is nothing more important in the world for you to do than to take this seriously. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, we, uh, um, I, I pray that even in uh, our time together that you have uh, brought up uh, a name or two in our minds, God. People that you've likely um, um, had in front of us for a long time and we've just ignored it or just missed it. Um, Father, we, uh, we just pray that all of a sudden they'd become blinking lights in our minds, God. That you would give us a passion for these people and God, that you would um, bring us. Uh, to being proactive and praying for these people and sharing life with these people. Um, God, that we would have opportunities to share your word to them, to, uh, to share what we believe um, about you and, and who you are, what you've saved us from and what you've done for us, Lord. God, give us a, a renewed passion to reach the lost people in our midst, Lord. Um, and God, that you would receive all credit and glory and that your kingdom would be added to it uh, this day. And every day, uh, this Christmas season and beyond. God, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.